Thanks very much for coming tonight. Uh, my name is William Uricchio, professor here in Comparative Media Studies. Uh, and it's a real honor, joy, and delight to invite, to, to introduce um, Professor Charles Musser. Um, we go way back, shared grad school years together, grad school days together back at, back at NYU. Uh, so that's a long time ago. And for those of you that, have, uh, that know much about the history of cinema, um, this guy is, uh, is foundational to our understanding um, of the early years of uh, film. Um, the Emergence of Cinema is a book that really mapped and problematized and really made profound the first couple of years of the uh, motion picture. A couple um, decades, please. Huh? <laughs> it's a couple decades. Well, a couple decades, but, but okay. a lot of your intervention was in that period up to, up to 1903. That's where it was okay. magical stuff. Um, and um, Professor Muster has, has done really phenomenal work in that excavating industry. Uh, the Edison Company, individuals, Edwin S. Porter, lecturers like Lyman Howell. Really wonderful work. And some of you may recall from class with me or, or not, but that this is a period that really, for the field of cinema studies, was, was um, fundamental in kind of putting on the agenda the merger of theory and history, of addressing the gaps in the historical record by infusing them with, with sort of problematizing method and thinking about theory. And the name Musser is inseparable from that project. I mean, it's really, it's an honor to have uh, uh, Charles Musser with us tonight. Uh, he's an award-winning author of countless books, countless, but seven, eight, uh, but somewhere in that vicinity, as well as a documentary maker uh, um, from Hearts and Minds, when you were one of the editors, one of the associates. I was first assistant editor. Okay, well, that's, yeah, 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 no, that's I was way back I cut a couple things. Um, uh, Charles is professor of film and media studies at Yale, but also professor of American studies and professor of theater studies uh, there. And um, we're going to be hearing a little bit about his latest book, which is really kind of, to put it in contemporary terms, a sort of cross-media exercise, looking at electoral politics at the turn of the century uh, across different media platforms. So something obviously with resonance for, for today. And welcome. Okay, take away. Thank you. And uh, thank you, uh, William, for uh, inviting me up here. Uh, it's interesting, so you get two slightly different points of view, because it's true that William, who was then Bill uh, Uricchio, uh was at NYU uh, in Cinema Studies, as was I. But I, how I remember meeting him was at SCMS, which was then the Society of Cinema Studies, SC, SC, yes, I can't even say it anymore. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we were, this was my first panel of his, it was actually 1981, he was 18 or 19, a very precocious young man, I think I was 21. Uh, anyway, we, we uh, that, that was our encounter, uh, and and I don't think that we really, but it was, never took classes together or anything like that. I think somehow, you know, you were the wunderkind, somehow we, we also I was very part-time. So anyway, so, so it's just to say, if you come away from wanting to learn anything today, it's that you should stay on friendly terms with the people that are on your first panels uh, at SEMS because who knows, they may you know, invite you out to their institution sometime to give a talk. Uh, and uh, in fact, you know, I have to say, without getting carried away, we've done a little bit of that back and forth uh, over the years. It's always been a great pleasure. And, and of course also, given that 
Bill, now William, is, has a Dutch affiliation. We really do call him William, uh, particularly since the Netherlands wants to be second now, you know, and, and, uh, we, <laughs> and so we, we have to, they were the first, they were actually the first country that wanted to be second, right, after America first. So we really need to, to be respectful of, uh, of their linguistic uh, quirks. So uh, and anyway, I mean, it is true that, that this, uh, this book project really is a, a kind of exercise in comparative media. Um, you know, I think within a given uh, election season, uh, and I basically cover the long 1890s, which is four elections, uh, 1888 through 1900, um, that uh, you know, it's really interesting to see the interplay between the different media forms. Uh, how they work against each other in relationship to, and in relationship to each other, how, and, and, and also how the two different political parties, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats, mobilize these media. So it's a comparison between these two, the, the way in which these two parties exploit, you know, a particular media formation at a particular moment. Um, then, of course, it can also be comparative, and, and this was, I think, I, I'm really proud about this aspect of the book because thing about American elections is they take place every four years, right? And everyone knows they're going to happen. The next one's going to happen in four years, right? So, like, you assess what happened uh, in your most recent election, and then you adapt, and then you come into another election. And so, you know, the, the whole idea, of course, is to mobilize media in a way that will maximize your chances uh, or your candidate's chances of winning an election. So it's really kind of a maximal use of, of media at, uh, every, at a particular moment, every four years. So you, it's really interesting to see how those things change. So you compare 1892 to 1888, 1896 to 1892, 1900, you know, et cetera. So, so there's a lot of, you know, comparisons that I, I think are, are productive uh, in, in this project. And, and of course, the my interest in new media in the contemporary election. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I guess my, my, first, my first love has always been documentary. And uh, so in 2004, you know, there, there was uh, Robert Greenwald's Uncovered the Whole Truth About the War in Iraq. There, there was Al Fox, and then of course there was Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11. It really seemed like documentary was driving the election in that, in fact, you know, George W. Bush would lose, uh, lose the election and, and John Kerry would win because of, of documentary. I mean, you know, this was a heroic moment. And of course it was done differently, particularly uh, with Robert Greenwald and, and Uncovered. They, had, they were using DVD technology, which was then you know, quite new, and they were having house parties, and they had a whole new way, and they were using the internet to organize these things. So it was a very sort of exciting moment. Um, and then, of course, you know, things didn't quite work out. I mean, the Republicans were very good at sort of, on, on one hand, uh, I think, uh, attacking Michael Moore so that he lost all credibility. And then they also were very successful with the Swift Boat, uh, Swift Boat Veterans for Truth and the television ad. So television actually unexpectedly ended up to being, being the decisive or one of the decisive uh, media factors in, in that election. So, you know, 2008, you know, though uh, there, were a lot, there was a lot of effort, particularly actually interesting about the Republicans who really felt, felt they were really vulnerable in this documentary business. And so they started to make some documentaries, not very good ones, 
But <clears throat> Ronald Greenwald and, um, and, and Obama really you know, started using the internet um, and YouTube uh, you know, most effectively. So right in 2008, if you, if you look at accounts of how Barack Obama won the nomination in the election, they actually sometimes say, well, it was his Yes We Can speech in, in New Hampshire. That, that was, if you recall, when Barack Obama lost the New Hampshire primary to Hillary Clinton and gave this fabulous speech, uh, Yes We Can, and, and uh, it rallied the troops. But I think the important thing was, you know, it was late, a late hour. There were a lot of other narratives going on not on TV, not least of all the narrative of Hillary Clinton's comeback. Uh, and, and it was really on YouTube and on the internet that, uh, that that speech took off. And then, of course, there was Will, Will I Am's uh, uh, Yes I Can uh, song, which is undoubtedly the most potent, at least I, I believe the most potent political campaign song in the history of American politics. I mean, it was really, I think, a, a really powerful invention. So, you know, this, this kind of sh these kinds of shifts that, that happened from election from one election to the next were ones that really interested me. And then I, I thought it might be interesting to, uh, since people were doing all this time, to look back on the 1890s uh, and sort of put the two in conversation with each other. And, and I, I sort of very quickly began to uncover certain things that I hadn't really expected. Um, you know, the not least of all was this illustrated lecture, the Tariff Illustrated, uh, which was, uh, I, I began to realize, the really the first campaign documentary that took place in 1888. Anyways, that's how this, this book sort of came about. I was actually going to, it was going to be a big book. It was going to look at two, actually it was going to look at the 1892 and 1896 election, 1948, 1952. So going from stereotypical to cinema, from cinema to television, and then television to the internet uh, with the 2004-2008. But that got to be too big a project, and I wanted to get something out in time for this election. So I ended up focusing on the 1890s, and I actually brought it broadened to you know, these four elections, which I, I actually found or believe would prove to be very productive. Um, and uh, so, so here we are. So this is uh, this is the resulting book, um, and uh, you know I, I want to. So what I want to do now is like talk a little bit about the book, but also you know I, as I think. What can often happen is that that book, in doing the research for that book, new questions began to come up, and particularly questions that uh, have been interesting for me about like the issue of the beginnings of documentary practice. Where, where did that begin? How can we think about documentary, the formation of documentary as a kind of important discourse? Where did that take place? Because it seems to me self-evident, I have to say, that Documentary did not begin in the 1920s, nor did it begin with uh, Battle of the Somme in 1916. It, it had a long, and by that point, it was a very long, well-established and vibrant tradition that, that went back at least, you know, well into the uh, 19th century. And so, how to make how to make sense of that um, without being reduced to technological determinism, which, you know, perhaps I have been guilty of at times. So, anyway. Oh, there's the cover of the book. So this is uh, th this is uh, uh, election night down at the New York World, uh, and as you can see, they're projecting. I think it was eight different uh, 
stereopticon uh, lanterns uh, slides onto the screen. Um, it was the largest magical lantern screen in the history of cinema, at least uh, according to William uh, to uh, Joseph Pulitzer. Of course, Joseph, Joseph Pulitzer liked to think that the New York World Building was the tallest building in the world, so he was really obsessed by the biggest and the best. Uh, you know, uh, and uh, the New York World had been actually pro-democratic, but it switched, and I guess that's part of the, the story. Um, so. Uh, you know, I, as, as William mentioned, uh, you know, I'm someone who spent a lot of time working on cinema in the 1890s. Um, one of my, not only, I mean, I like to think I do more than up to 1903, but, uh, but, but certainly one, one book I did was uh, Edison Motion Pictures, 1890 to 1900, an annotated filmography of the first slightly less than like 900 and some odd films uh, made at the Edison Company between uh, 1890, well, yeah, 1891 and 1900. Anyway, um, so, uh, but but one of the things I also found that it was really I I didn't know as I was my knowledge of American cinema in this period was not necessarily as exhaustive as I had believed. That I learned, in fact, there was a lot to be learned by focusing on, if you will, presidential politicking and cinema uh, and the, the interplay between these two, uh, which I just had not really recognized. Now, McKinley at Home was made by the Biograph Company. And um, Biograph was a media startup that was basically a media startup by the Republican Party. Um, and you know, why did the Republicans, uh, why were they so interested in cinema? Well, they, the Republicans had won basically the White House for 30 years until, is that right? 20, no, maybe it's not, but maybe it's like 24 years until uh, 1884 when Joseph Pulitzer, um, in his, uh, who had acquired the New York world, was able to uh, get Cleveland, Grover Cleveland, the first Democrat after the Civil War, into the White House. And, and he did that through newspapers, through his newspaper, specifically the New York world. The Grover Cleveland won New York State by 1,000 votes, just over 1,000 votes in 1884. And New York State was a swing state, as it had always been. Whoever won New York State won the election, and that was true from at least 1872 to 1916. So New York was, had, had been, been crucial, right? So, so the Republicans were really upset by this. You know, it was the damn liberal media of Joseph Pulitzer, and it's been the liberal media that's been the problem ever since. So how to how to how to counter that edge? Because it wasn't only in New York City, in fact, but in a lot of other major cities that a lot, that news that major city newspapers were Democratic. Outside of the big cities, you know, the newspapers tended to be Republican, to be sure. But uh, but the cities were becoming more and more important. So um, so so this was the problem. So how do you do it? And and uh, and so one of the things Republicans started to do was to look at new media forms. Uh, the Stereopticon was one, but in 1896 it was uh, motion pictures. And so uh, Abner McKinley, uh, <coughs> William McKinley's brother, was uh, working uh, down on Wall Street. Uh, he, he was involved in um, uh, 
uh, patent, patent law, and he actually had come to New York to, because he had a kind of modern telex, he had the idea of a telex machine that, that, that could be used. It never quite took off, but he sort of stayed and was looking for other, if you will, uh, new media opportunities. And then cinema came along. So, so the Biograph Company, uh, it was not, so Adam McKinley, William McKinley's brother was involved, but also Benjamin Harrison uh, was another investor in, in the Biograph Company. Benjamin Harrison, of course, had been president uh, from 1889 to 1893. He lost to Grover Cleveland in 1892. So, you know, Grover Cleveland, as you may know, is the one president who won in 1884, lost in 1888, then won in 1892. Um, you know, and then there was a terrible recession, or, or actually depression and financial panic. And so Benjamin Harrison actually had the thought that he might do a Grover Cleveland and come back and win in 1896. Um, so, so, so all these Republicans were investing in the Biograph as a way to uh, you know, make use of a new media form that could in some way counter the, the dominance of the Democrats in terms of the press. Now, a lot of things happened in 1896, not least of all involving the press, so that, that changed. But anyway, here is, um, here is McKinley at home. Is, is that? So it's a one-shot film. Now, William McKinley uh, was conducting a front porch campaign in Canton, Ohio, right? <clears throat> and uh, so he, he felt, among other things, that even though he was the great order of the Republican Party and had been going around speaking on behalf of Benjamin Harrison in 1892 and a lot of other uh, Republicans, um, he felt that if he was going to go head-to-head -head with William Jennings Bryant, who was really considered the great orator of the early 20th century, that, that this would be an unfavorable comparison. And so he announced that he would just stay at home and conduct a front, court, front porch campaign. Now this may sound somewhat eccentric, but um, in fact, sitting presidents in general did not campaign. Uh, Benjamin Harrison had not campaigned in 1892, in part because his wife was sick. But this was part of a long tradition. So by, by parking himself in Canton, Ohio, he in some ways wanted to look presidential, particularly against this young upstart, uh, pro-silver, radical communist, William Jen Jennings Bryan. Um, so um, but there was a problem, right, which was that there was also this expectation that the candidate not that the candidate would speak a lot, right? The, the candidate was sort of aloof, but that he would show up at rallies that would be given in large cities. So like Chicago, for instance, uh, and really in 1896, it was recognized that Illinois would be maybe the decisive swing state, or could be the decisive swing state. That, um, that, so the Chicago Republican Party organized this big rally on Chicago Day. They, they were like going all out, so among other things, they wanted all businesses in Chicago to close that day, provided that their workers went and, 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 and marched for McKinley. And they tried to do that with the city government as well, to sort of declare it a special holiday. That didn't quite necessarily entirely work, but they, that was their idea. So they really wanted William McKinley to come to Chicago, right? Well, William McKinley understood that if he went to Chicago, then he was gonna to have to go to every other big city. So he said no. So he was parked in Canton, Ohio. So, you know, how, how do you get McKinley to be present 
you know, in, in these big cities. And, and one idea, in fact, and this happened in New York, was to show McKinley at home uh, on the screen. So the, the official debut, not the actual first screens, but the official debut of the Biograph Company was at, cost, was at sorry, uh, Hammerstein's Olympia Music Hall uh, in October uh, of 1896. And it was sponsored by the Republican National Committee. Right? And so all these Republicans came in and, into Hammerstein's Olympia Music Hall to, to, to hail their candidate. And in fact, the vice president, uh, Holbart, was supposed to show up. And, uh, you know, as they showed the film, he was supposed to have to, hey, Bill, sorry, not William, but hey, Bill. Uh, and uh, for uh, reasons I hope to explain, he did not show up um, because other media forums were being used to do the same thing. But the whole idea was, and, and this is what the reviews would say, that McKinley was, McKinley and his home were magically transformed, a trans uh, transposed uh, to the, uh, the, the to Hammerstein's Olympia Music Hall. It was like a kind of form of magic, and, and uh, it was really quite extraordinary. Now, it wasn't just the film by itself. I mean, the Biograph Company, I think, uh, very skillfully uh, did a, a, a created a, surrounded the McKinley film with other films that were patriotic and uh, in nature. And they, so through associational editing, if you will, um, they, uh, or, or uh, if you will, montage of attractions, they surrounded uh, McKinley at home. On one hand, uh, just before it was uh, a Republican parade in Canton, Ohio uh, uh, for, for McKinley. And, and of course, what happened here was that small delegations, they weren't that small, would come to Canton, Ohio, and he would, McKinley would get to his, come to his front porch, or there was a little speaker's platform sort of at the, at the, in the front of his house, and he, he, would, he would speak to these delegations, and then the newspapers would report what he had to say. Um, the, uh, and then they concluded uh, this program with, uh, with the Empire State Express. Um, now, <clears throat> Among other things was Joseph Jefferson in Rip Van Winkle, uh, two, two scenes of Niagara Falls, of America's majestic beauty, American culture. So McKinley was sort of embedded in this. And, and actually, uh, Joseph Jefferson in Rip Van Winkle was sort of had an extra little spice to it because Joseph Jefferson had been good friends with Grover Cleveland. You have to understand that Grover Cleveland, the now uh, <clears throat> humiliated uh, president uh, who had been rejected by the Democratic Party in favor of William Jennings Bryan uh, was pro-gold, was, was, was pro like William McKinley. So that certain gold, in fact, lots of sort of pro-Cleveland Democrats ended up supporting McKinley. So that Joseph Jefferson was in this mix. Uh, and in fact, he was one of the investors in the Biograph Company as well. Uh, it's not, it, it was telling in its own way. But the Empire State Express is really I think particularly uh, interesting as a kind of final film. Why? Well, the Empire State was the swing state, right? So, you know, here the Empire State was barreling ahead for McKinley, um, and and, uh, and and of course people understood that. And in, in fact, you know, many of the people in the audience there, um, inclu including um, Chauncey Depew, who was the president of the of the New York Central Railroad, which 
had the, uh, um, the Empire State Express, uh, you know, were obviously Republicans. And in fact, Chauncey Depew was the person who basically made McKinley, uh, assured that McKinley would get the nomination uh, when he conducted a, uh, uh, a dinner in his house uh, uh, back in, in, in earlier in, in 1896. So the Empire State Express, you know, was this breaking new records and embodied the Empire State, full speed ahead, and also not just full speed ahead, but plowing into, seemingly uh, plowing into the audience, not unlike, if you will, the prow of the battleship Potemkin at, at the end of Potemkin, right? Uh, so, uh, and uh, in fact, it was so, of course, some people fainted, uh, other people screamed, but it was such a popular film that it had to go at the end, and it was often, often repeated. So, you know, this new technology also was like the new technology, the Biograph Company, the Biograph was, had a much larger format film than, than standard 35 millimeter. It's, it's, it was projected at more frames a second, taken and projected at more frames a second. So it was a superior, it was the superior, the standard, uh, uh, or it set new standards in terms of motion picture production. So that, that McKinley would be associated with the Biograph Company, associated with the Empire State, as well as Niagara Falls, etc. This, this all was like very potent stuff. Um, so, um, so yeah, so here is uh, the Empire State Expressway. Express. Now, you know, these, these are made from paper prints and really give you very little appreciation of the quality of, of what biograph films were like and what this film was like in 1896. This, uh, in 1902, 1903, what happened was the biograph company began to sell its films. Before that, it only rented its exhibition service. So it reduced from its 70 millimeter film to 35 millimeter film, and then it printed every other frame, and then sold 35 millimeter prints on that basis. So, and then this is a paper print from that. So you can see how removed it is, but th this, this, this was very uh, potent. So, you know, in contrast, Williams Jennings Bryan um, uh, conducted uh, and pioneered really the presidential uh, whistle stop tour. Uh, and he went around the country, often talking for the back of, uh, back of a train. Um, Harry Truman would do this as well, if you, if you remember. <laughs> he gave like over four or 500 speeches um, uh, trying, you know, he, one of the things he said was, you know, since he didn't have the newspapers on his side, and, and this is an important point, uh, he had to talk to the people directly because he couldn't trust the media. Um, and indeed, um, what happened in 1896 and the reason why the Biograph Company and a lot of other new media forms I'm talking about were perhaps not as important, uh, as they thought, as the Republican Party thought they might be, was because uh, Bryan was anathema to uh, the, the traditional Democratic press. So the New York World went for McKinley. The New York Sun went for McKinley. The New York Times went for McKinley. All, you know, and this happened all, all over the country. So really in New York State, the, in New York City, the only newspaper that supported um, William Jennings Bryant was Hearst New York Journal, which was a newly established. So Hearst actually capitalized on this campaign because he was the only, his newspaper was the only newspaper 
to support the Democratic candidate, um, which he did, you know, very avidly. And also, he started to use motion pictures, particularly showing them, projecting them on election night uh, in his at his various offices where people went to watch the returns. So, anyways, he and William Jennings Bryant were. Uh, uh, he, he was the sort of, the, in a way, the mouthpiece, the newspaper mouthpiece for William Jennings Bryant. Um, now, Bryant, on the other hand. Um, had some idea about the value of, of motion pictures. And in fact, um, if you recall, the Edison Company and the Vitascope Company, the Vitascope Company um, sold states' rights to a, a series of exhibitors all over the country. And of course, in many parts of the country, uh, there was a very strong interest in William Jenny Bryan. And so these exhibitors were putting pressure, probably on, on the Democratic campaign, but certainly also on the Edison Company to to provide films of Williams Jenny Bryant. So really, <clears throat> five days after W.K.L. Dixon uh, and uh, G.W. Bitzer went to Canton, Ohio and filmed McKinley at home. Canton. Canton, Ohio. Canton. Canton. So, <laughs> okay. Friends of mine live there. So friends, friends of uh, McKinley's live there too, <laughs> as it turned out. Uh, because, um, so, uh, so what happened was um, that five days after, after uh, the Biograph Company was there, uh, William Jennings Bryan, uh, on his whistle stop tour, stopped off in Orange, New Jersey. And it was arranged for the Edison Company to film uh, WK, uh, uh, sorry, Bryan train scene, Orange, New Jersey. Only, only like five days afterwards. You know, the coincidence, I think, is really interesting. You know, we can speculate. Like, was this just by chance? I mean, somehow that seems somewhat unlikely. You know, was there some democratic bowl in the Biograph Company? You know, um, was there someone out in Canton who, uh, who, who like reported this? I mean, but it seems like that would have been taken a lot to get, get, the, get Brian there so, so quickly. But anyway, these things were very close. Now, <clears throat> The, there was no reason uh, why the Edison Company and the Vitascope Company could not have gotten Brian Tracy into New York theaters probably two weeks before uh, Biograph got uh, McKinley uh, at home into the theater. Uh, because, you know, Orange, New Jersey, I mean, they just had to take it down the street and develop the film, print it, send it into uh, to, uh, Proctor's theaters where the Vitascope was playing. It would have been a piece of cake. Why did this not happen? Well, it turns out that the Vitascope Company, which was the creation of Norman Raff and Frank Gammon, Norman Raff, C. Raff, was from Canton, Ohio, and in fact was friends of McKinley. I guess there might have been a little political sabotage going on, right? That they, so a week after, a week after McKinley at Home was shown at Hammerstein's Olympia, the uh, Brian train scene opened in Proctor's. Now, I've already described a little bit, at least, the ways of associational editing, if you will, a montage of attractions that were being used by the Biograph Company in regards to McKinley, surrounding him with patriotic images, right? So what was Brian's train scene surrounded by? Apparently, it was a big week for comedy. 
wash day, feeding the chickens, Brian Tracy. <laughs> I don't know. That, that just you know may have been miscellaneous cinema cinema attractions, or it may have been something a little more focused. I will leave that to you to to think about. So, anyway, um, where are we? So, um, but again, what really launched me on this on this project uh, initially was this discovery. Of the of uh, the campaign documentary, the Illustrated Lecture, the Tariff Illustrated, um, I stumbled across it first in 1892, and then uh, uh, I went backwards, and it turns out it really originated in 1888. Um, and um, boy, so what John, where John, Judge John Wheeler uh, delivered this, uh, Judge John Wheeler had been a traditional Democrat. And he had gone on the campaign trail, you know, he was one of many speakers. And, and uh, uh, political oratory was really in full force in this period. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that was, uh, that's definitely suffered uh, every four years uh, in the fall uh, was the theater, because people stopped going to the theater because they wanted to go hear political oratory and go out and celebrate, go to the bar, talk politics. It was a kind of male holiday, if you will. Every four years they got to get out of the house uh, and, uh, and, and do male politicking uh, in this period. So, um, uh, but anyway, so Judge Wheeler had been doing that. He also began to do, uh, uh, give some illustrated lectures, mostly about, um, uh, about the Civil War. Um, it's interesting, there were a lot of illustrated lectures on the Civil War during the Civil War. And my assumption had been that they always sort of just continued. As, and, and, and in fact, I don't think that was the case. It seems like, and this is maybe makes sense when you think about it, after the war, no one wants to see illustrated lectures about the war. But like beginning around the mid-1880s, uh, they began to be a renewed interest in the history of, of, of uh, the Civil War. And of course, these veterans wanted to go and get together and. And they were, you know, there was a lot of obsession about accurate depictions or representations of given battles in Gettysburg in particular. But there were a lot of things, uh, a lot of illustrated lectures on the war. And Judge Wheeler, uh, who had, I think he was, he was a general and a prominent general in the, in the uh, GAR, the General Army of the Republic, uh, sort of the veterans group. Um, and, and so he began to give these illustrated lectures. So. He, he sort of put these two things together, but he switched camps, right? He had been, as he say, said, a Randall Democrat. And the Randall Democrats were like, they favored a higher tariff, but uh, Grover Cleveland, the candidate in 1884, and particularly in 1888, wanted lower tariffs. And this was an advent to the Republicans who believed in a protective tariff to protect business so that by raising the price of imported goods that America first. Uh, and so, um, so this this was the big battle. So he, so Judge B Wheeler, went around giving this illustrated lecture to two thousand people a night, one hundred seventy-five thousand people. What was that like? Eighty-five, roughly like eighty, eighty-five uh, different times he gave this lecture uh, in eighteen eighty-eight, and he uh, and, and and Benjamin Harrison actually managed to defeat Grover Cleveland. 
by 10,000 votes in New York, right? Grover Cleveland had won in 1884 by 1,000. This time, uh, Benjamin Harrison won by 10,000. 175,000 people had seen the tariff illustrated. Well, the, the people who sponsored uh, uh, Wheeler, which was the, uh, the Protective Tariff League, which was the major political action committee of the 18, 1880s, uh, they really believed that they'd found the secret to success. And that secret was the political documentary, the campaign documentary of, of the tariff illustrated. So, um, so what do you do in 1892? Well, if it worked well in 1888, then you just do more in 1892. So there were, the Republicans put six different illustrated lecture uh, orders, political orders with the, their, the illustrated lecture, the tariff illustrated, updated to show the glories of what the protective tariff had done under Benjamin Harrison, uh, particularly with uh, uh, tin plate. They, there was a specially high tariff on tin plate, and a lot of factories started manufacturing tin plate. So like this uh, one guy went and like, they, they, all the tin plate that was being made in New Jersey was sort of on display, and then he gave this illustrated lecture on, on, on tin plate. Well, uh, this, as it turned out, did not work as well as you might expect. So anyway, this is, this is uh, you know, got me interested again in the, the history of the stereopticon and, um, in the United States. And um, the, um, you know, one thing for sure is that uh, uh, dig digital archives of, of printed material, newspapers, and other things have certainly made it much more possible to dig deeper and more systematically uh, in into this history. But this term stereopticon is not one that you may all, may not all be familiar with. So just very briefly, the stereopticon is a kind of modernized, if you will, magic lantern. Between the magic lantern and the slideshow, between PowerPoint and the Phantasmagoria, there was the stereopticon. Uh, and uh, it was sort of seen in the United States, it was a, a term uniquely uh, coined in the United States, the term stereopticon was basically never used in the UK, for instance, except when they were quoting an American source. Um, but the stereopticon sort of brought together three, three new components that revolutionized screen practice and was seen in the United States in, in many respects as what I would consider a new media form. So those were the introduction of the lantern slide, the photographic slide, the projected photographic slide of uh, in, in the lantern, which, uh, you know, if you think of it, when photography was invented, right, it was on a piece of silver, it was daguerreotype, or it was on paper, it was not until 1850 when uh, the Langenheims managed to transfer a positive photographic image to glass so that it could be projected. Um, but it was another 10 years before the term stereopticon was, was uh, coined. And I mean, I think there's a number of reasons for that. One was certainly that the technology of, of photographic reproduction, you know, certainly improved. Um, if you look at the Langenheim, some of the early Langenheim lantern slides, they're heavily painted, et cetera. But uh, also, also the stereoscope emerged. And, and although you're used to seeing mostly paper, you know, the stereoscope where you look in and you get the illusion of 3D, they're mostly, you see them on cards, but 
But actually, the, the effect is much more powerful if, you, if they use glass slides, sort of stereo, stereoscopic slides, which were two of them. Um, so, but ultimately what happened is that that illusion of depth of 3D, which you got by looking at the stereoscope, when you projected a, an image, a photographic image on the screen using this new media form, uh, there was a much stronger illusion of depth. You know, they, some people argue that in fact it was 3D, but that was not the case. But nonetheless, you know, the illusion of depth, which you must be familiar with when you watch motion pictures, uh, was much, much stronger than it had been, you know, if you simply look at a photograph, say, on a piece of paper. Uh, so, so the photographic lantern slide, you know, was really a radical transformative moment. But in conjunction with that was a much more powerful light source. Uh, often uh, calcium light or oxyhydron. They had a, there were a variety of them and a variety of names for them, but it was a much, much more powerful light source. So you could project it on a much larger screen and it's on a much larger screen and the screen would be uh, also much brighter. And then there was all, all the use of modern uh, lenses so that the image was much sharper than it had been in the past. So you had a photographic image projected larger and sh brighter and sharper and that was really transformative since what people were used to seeing projected on the screen was basically uh, painted images or lithographic images or <coughs> something along those lines. So, um, you know, I became sort of interested in, in, in this history and, and, and the stereopticon sort of emerged, was uh, in pop, popular discourse very rapidly around uh, late 1860. Um, and in fact, one of the things that was really interesting to me, I realized, was that the stereopticon could not be used for political purposes. It, it was just like a couple months too late, right? It was right after the uh, after Lincoln had uh, won the presidency, but it was used, in fact, for very much political purposes. In that, it, it offered the Union perspective on the Civil War, and so there were a lot of these uh, accounts of the Civil War and, and and what had been unfolding, and it was always from a Union perspective. So it actually from the very early on was political, but not in terms of presidential politics. <coughs> it was barely, and, and, and all those sort of later slides of, of the Civil War <coughs> suddenly sort of disappeared, like in October, uh, September and October of 1864. And I, I found one instance where it was, where there was uh, that, that, that program still being shown, and it concluded with an image of Lincoln and of McClellan, right, of his Democratic candidate. So there was always this awareness that of the political, potential political potency in terms of presidential politicking. And so they were really careful, in fact, to, to not t play sides, right, when in, in uh, 1864. So, um, so anyways, that's a little bit uh, about that. But, um, you know, in, in, starting in 1872, really, it was, uh, they started using the lantern slide to, um, I'm sorry, the stereopticon to, to uh, show um, the results of the election. So, you know, what had hit, happened historically is like people would go down to the local newspaper office, which was getting the reports, you know, over, over the telegraph. <laughs> and so they go there to, to find out, you know, what the results were as they were pouring in, you know, the way we do with television today, that people did that by going to the to, to the local newspaper. And you, of course, in a large city, you go to the newspaper that you respected or were aligned with. 
which, you know, so when the New York World, sorry, the New York Herald, which is Democratic, announces that Harrison uh, uh, <coughs> carries the state by 12,000 votes, you know it's all over, right? That, <laughs> that if the Herald is saying that the Harrison won, Harrison won, and indeed uh, he, he did. Um, so the lantern was being used in this way really from 1872, and then they would sometimes project uh, slogans on, on walls and things like that. But, but it, it, the, uh, the Illustrated Lecture uh, uh, and the Tariff Illustrated was uh, came, what's that, 1872 to 16 years later. So four, it was four election cycles before it was being used in that way. Okay. Um, so, uh, of course, one thing that I was uh, that that I was uh, curious about uh, and was not, uh, would have been difficult to uh, ignore was was the phonograph and how the phonograph was used in elections. Right. So the phonograph really began to have commercial applications around 1890, and certainly it could have been used in the 1892 presidential election. You could have, in theory, recorded, if, if not the, the candidates themselves, uh, you could have recorded, get, you could have gotten announcers to re-record their speeches or something. And this simply did not happen. But um, in 1896, um, in this, if you will, new media moment of the, this, the, the phonograph was sort of seen as playing a really important role, and one that apparently that potentially could have go to the benefit of William Jennings Bryan, since he was the great orator. So the truth of the matter is, I think the technology was very primitive, and it did not make sense for William Jennings Bryan to yell into a little phonograph horn uh, to record uh, some small part of his speech when he could be out there, you know, speaking live and more extensively to uh, to to a public. But the, the various phonograph companies did take speeches, particularly William McKinley's speeches. They excerpted them, and they um, uh, and 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 they, they they were his speech, but not his his voice, were in these records, and they would put them into phonograph parlors where they were very popular. Um, and um, you know, and, and then also they they did a little bit of this of uh, William. Uh, McKinley's speeches as well. So you could go into a phonograph parlor and first listen to Across a Gold speech by uh, William Jenny Bryan, and then you could listen to William McKinley on Wall Street or something. Um, and, and, and what was interesting is that newspapers, depending upon their orientation, uh, political orientation, you know, would talk about how terrible and crude the, the, uh, the William Jennings Bryan speech was and how melodious and, and, and intellectual uh, William, Jenny, uh, William McKinley was, or, or it could be vice versa. Right? So, but of course, mostly it was pro-McKinley, since the newspapers were generally that. But, but so um, th th there were other, uh, other things going on um, at that time. So, so then, then um, this is uh, one of those parades. Uh, this is Sound Money Club, Sound Money Parade, I think, in New York. Um, and this is the kind of parade that William McKinley should have been at, and he wasn't. So remember going back to Chicago, the Chicago Republican Club wanted McKinley to come and he wouldn't go. 
So what do you do? How do you solve, you know, is there any solution to this problem? And the electrical division of the Republican, of, of Republican uh, Club of Chicago had this great idea of mounting uh, telephone transmitters by the reviewing stand. And so when the reviewers marched by, they could yell into the, uh, into the, in, into the transmitters, yay, Bill! <laughs> and William McKinley, because you have to understand that in late 1892, too late for the 1892 election, certainly, and there was no interest, but in late 1892, they installed a long-distance telephone line between New York and Chicago. So you could actually communicate by telephone from one to the other. Now, <laughs> in fact, both the Republicans and the Democrats used the long-distance telephone uh, you know, to communicate uh, during the 1896 election. But this was different. This was used for public politics. And so they put the transmitters by the reviewing stand, and then they ran it to McKinley's home in Canton. And, uh, and uh, they put in 12 ear sets of earphones, six in, uh, in uh, Mrs. McKinley's uh, parlor, and six uh, in, in the living room, I guess, with William McKinley. And, um, so as people walked, you know, marched by, they could yell into the transmitter, and McKinley was listening to it. Well, Hobart was also listening to it because it was it was transmitted into the Republican National Committee headquarters in New York as well, where Hobart listened to it, and I think he just thought it was a bunch. <laughs> Hobart was not a young guy to begin with, right? He died in office uh, as vice president, and uh, he just thought it was a bunch of malarkey. And so this is, and, and so this actually. The Chicago rendition of this happened like a few days before the debut of the Biograph in New York. And this is why I think Hobart did not bother to show up uh, to see uh, McKinley at home. He went out and gave a speech in New Jersey instead, which is where he was from. So, so they did this in Chicago, and exactly what happened, what, what you might predict happened, in fact happened, which was every major, in every major city after that, when you really wanted to have a serious parade for McKinley, you had to have the telephone transmitters. McKinley had to be there and listening to them, right? And it was actually what was interesting in Buffalo, just before, you know, a couple of days before the election, um, the Commercial Travelers League uh, of uh, the Republican Party, the Commercial Travelers, these were salesmen, and they had traditionally been Democratic, and they, and they went for McKinley. And so the Commercial Travelers League in Buffalo were like in a large hall and they, you know, shouted out their, their chants to McKinley. But McKinley reciprocated and he delivered a short speech to them. So this was maybe the first time that you had a kind of broadcast of a political speech, it seems to me, in, 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 uh, in the history of American politics. So anyway, so in New York, uh, the New York, you know, those of us who were Preoccupied with motion, motion pictures, always noted that, noted that, like there were, I think the Edison Company, the Biograph Company, the International Film Company, and maybe one or two others, were were filming the Sound Money Parade um, in uh, in New York City uh, the, sat the Saturday before before the election. But there also were the telephone transmitters. So anyway, and then just to return to my favorite campaign button. Uh, <coughs> You know, here's McKinley and Hobart on their uh, bicycle built for two. A bicycle really was at its peak uh, in 1896. It was really a kind of huge fad. I mean, it's not that it entirely disappeared, but um, 
So, uh, but there was a lot, the Republicans had, did, uh, there was a lot of energy and attention devoted to creating bicycle clubs for McKinley. Um, and, you know, I think th that the bicycle was seen, and they found various ways to use it. The bicycle would escort various prominent pol politicians to the reviewing stand, or they would, they, they all actually, bicycle clubs from all over the country descended on Canton one day, uh, despite all the rain, and McKinley spoke to them and talked about how the bicycle was the most important, you know, invention and innovation of the, of the 19th century. Um, and uh, anyway, so bicycle clubs, the mobility of the bicycle, it seems to me, uh, it was uh, really mirrors the kind of mobility that happens with the telephone uh, and cinema and the photograph, which you know, can move voices across spaces and, and across time. So I think that that's happening. Okay, well, I told you a little bit about, about the New York world uh, and this, so maybe I'll keep on going. But um, so, you know, to, to move on to the uh, after uh, yeah, Roosevelt Rough Riders, after the 1896 election, um, you know, uh, obviously there was the sinking of the battleship Maine. Um, you know, McKinley was a reluctant, or at least somewhat reluctant, uh, president to get us involved in the Spanish-American War. Um, but uh, Teddy Roosevelt became um, uh, a, a major hero of that war through the Battle of um, San Juan Hill. And within five, within five days of that, of that battle, uh, in which he led the, supposedly led the charge up San Juan Hill, um, he was being talked about as the Republican candidate for governor of New York State. Um, I mean, there was a kind of groundswell. Teddy Roosevelt, you know, for governor. And there was only one small problem with this, with this draft movement, if you will, and that was that there were already was a Republican governor who wanted to run again and, you know, had every prospect of winning. And so how do you, how do you get a, a, around that, that problem? Um, this film, Roosevelt Rough Riders, actually was shown, um, uh, uh, it was taken uh, in Tampa, Florida, just before the, the, uh, the Rough Riders and, and other soldiers embarked for Cuba. But it was shown in July actually just the week after the Battle of San Juan Hill. So, th so this film is being shown in by the Biograph in major cities across the country, uh, just as the draft uh, Roosevelt movement was started. More, more uh, I think also equally interesting, um, was that Mason Mitchell, who was uh, an actor who joined the Rough Riders um, and, and was there uh, in the various battles, um, he, he, he was wounded and came back, and then he went on the vaudeville stage and gave a 20-minute illustrated lecture about the Battle of San Juan Hill and the three heroes of that battle. And it was probably just by chance that two of them were dead, and the only living hero uh, of his uh, that he recounted was uh, Teddy Roosevelt. In any case, he, he started off, he did this in Proctor's Theater, uh, in early September, while the, the, the outcome of the draft Roosevelt movement was still very much in doubt. And it really seems to have had an impact. And then he went 
and did it in Albany, and then uh, and and then Roosevelt won the nomination, um, and then Mason Mitchell uh, started going and giving this illustrated lecture around the country in major cities, and then at a certain point. He, he stopped giving this illustrated lecture around the cities, and he went back and joined Roosevelt. Because Roosevelt, once he won the nomination, he met with the state Republican State Committee, and he said, the one thing I request uh, from you is Mason Mitchell. If I can have Mason Mitchell, that's all I care about. So in fact, Mason Mitchell toured with Teddy Roosevelt. And so when Teddy Roosevelt would go into the Gloversville Opera House and speak to 3,000 people, 5,000 people would be outside listening to Mason Mitchell until Teddy Roosevelt could get done with the people who were inside and then he could speak to the people outside. So, the Mason, so this was a point where, if you will, in 1896, what's I think really interesting is that politics began to move back into the theater, right? If the theater, if, if political theater and commercial amusements were in some way anathema or incompatible, the Biograph Company, in particular, began to move politics back into the theater. That was, I think, a huge achievement in, in 1896. But then, with Mason Mitchell, what happens is, you know, politics moves out of the theater and, and, and sorry, uh, the, the theater moves out of the theater and into politics uh, with Mason Mitchell. So, um, uh, so yeah, so the, the other thing about, um, I wanted to talk about a little bit is, um, the role of, of the illustrated lecture. Am I running? Okay. I'm getting near the end. Uh, maybe I won't talk, talk as much about after this. But anyways, the, uh, what, was, what was for me a kind of surprise, which was the role of the illustrated lecture in the 1900 uh, election, or leading up to the 1900 election. It wasn't, in fact, these illustrated lectures were not billed as political presentations. They were not campaign uh, they were not campaign uh, uh, doc documentaries, if you will. They were more, they were about the war. And the glorious war run, uh, headed by William McKinley and <coughs> glories of American uh, might and, and, and expansionism. And um, it just happened that actually one of them, Dwight Elmsdorf, had been, was one of two photographers who actually was uh, sort of went with uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Elmendorf was uh, a Republican of sort of Dutch descent, um, like Roosevelt. Uh, and uh, so he, he was able, through Scribner's and his father's connections, to attach himself with Roosevelt. And then he came back and gave uh, sort of evening length illustrated lectures about, uh, about the Cuba campaign. Uh, and so these are just, uh, I don't know if he took this image, but he took these images. And they're actually down the street at the Harvard at Harvard, uh, the Elmendorf in the in the Roosevelt collection. So, and as you can see, nicely nicely tinted. Um, but but there was just a huge number of illustrated lectures by people who accompanied, you know, who went, who 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 sort of were embedded by embedded. Uh, Lantern, Lantern journalists, I mean, sort of like, think of the Iraq War and, and all these young uh, video cameramen or camerawomen like Laura Poitras or, you know, you can go, go down the line who went over to Iraq. Well, I mean, or, or, or you can think of perhaps more aptly the mainstream journalists, you know, from the television companies who were embedded with the military. 
Yeah, uh, and, uh, and, and that's in effect what these guys did. Uh, also, what happened was people in the military, uh, from the Sigma Corps, whatever, I don't know how they arranged it, but they managed to have a lot of free time to go around the country and showing their, their photographs. So, uh, 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 and they give an illustrated lecture on the war in the Philippines or other places. And, and of course, one thing to keep in mind is this, this is the moment of the Kodak camera, of the snapshot. So, you know, the, s photography becomes much more accessible. Uh, and, and a lot, and so the images that uh, a lot of these people are showing are images they took themselves. They become actually very personal sort of accounts uh, of, of the war. And the military, you know, for all that it was being beaten up in the Philippines, was apparently very uh, in favor of America's imperial adventure over there. So, um, anyway, meanwhile, the American Mutoscope Company continued to show lots of uh, <clears throat> films of, of course, McKinley, but other Republicans. So these would go into, uh, into vaudeville theaters based on uh, the fact that they were uh, news events, right? But, so Roosevelt, who was newsworthy in his own way because he was a kind of political celebrity, uh, was, was certainly one of the favored um, subjects uh, of the Biograph Company. Um, and uh, this is just uh, you know, one, one, one example. Um, These American? Are what? These American soldiers? The, the, yeah, this, this is a Union Square, uh, Governor Roosevelt and staff. Um, so the, these are various dressed up guards and militia. Uh, yeah, you know, America has always loved the parade, and the militia in particular like to get dressed up in really as fancy uniforms as possible. I don't know, there was just the uh, St. Patty's Day parade uh, uh, in New Haven, and you know, they're still doing versions of that uh, even today. Um, this is just a, a photograph of uh, Burton Holmes, uh, who uh, is in the Philippines, uh, film, photographing in the Philippines, and he was in the Philippines in, uh, uh, in, the, in the wake uh, of, the, of the war, uh, and uh, I think he, so he was there, I think, in May, June of 1899, uh, showed his uh, illustrated lecture on the Filipino War, or the, uh, the American troops defending or in a defensive posture in Manila uh, in uh, late 1899, early 1900. So these are the kinds of illustrated lectures that were uh, being given you know, as a kind of version of a kind of news travelogue uh, uh, it, prior, to the, prior to the 1900 election. So William Jennings Bryan um, was no longer really running so much on his uh, 16 to 1 uh, silver, uh, silver versus gold or free silver platform. He was much more running uh, as an anti-imperialist. He was against America's imperial expansion. Now he fought in the Spanish-American War, or at least he joined the army, I think he was a colonel or something in the Spanish-American War, he didn't actually see action. Um, but he came out of that war not sort of, his idea of what that war was about was much more the liberation of, if you will, of Cuba than the occupation of Cuba as an American sort of quasi-colony, um, and, and certainly he was against the occupation of the the reconquest of the Philippines as a American colony. And indeed, the Democrats would tend to run, including Wilson in, 18, in 1912, a kind of uh, 
Filipino independence uh, kind of thing. So, um, so, so it was really when Williams, Jenny, Bryant started going around the country uh, again on a, on a version of his Whistle Stop tour in 1900. Uh, as his biographer points out, he was sort of stunned to see that Americans had sort of already made up their minds. And, and I think one factor in that was definitely these many illustrated lectures. So, um, you know, uh, of course, uh, Hobart died in office, and, and Roosevelt was the hero uh, of San Juan Hill. Uh, I've shown you the various sort of immediate components, so it was perhaps not so surprising that he became uh, McKinley's running mate. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I had always... Uh, been sort of a little interested in Joanne Morale's uh, book, uh, the presidential campaign film, which sort of talks about how Roosevelt had two cameramen with him uh, in 1898. You know, I mean, it turns out I think he probably had two photographers with him. Uh, and, and my point would simply be that Roosevelt was much more using uh, photography as a media form for political action in in, in the uh, late. 19th century in the 1900 election than, than uh, motion pictures. He, it was in 1912 that really he began to use motion pictures in a particularly uh, effective way, so 12 years outside uh, my time period. But here is, I'll just conclude maybe with this comedy uh, from February 1901. Um, yeah, I have one more. Uh, uh, and here he is. Vice President-elect Teddy Roosevelt going out uh, hunting uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the wilds of the West, uh, accompanied by my press agent and my photographer. Um, this was based on a cartoon series in the New York Journal. Um, and uh, of course, the New York Journal being the one newspaper that had been continued to be pro-democratic, continued to be pro-Brian uh, in 1900. So uh, you know, this is a certain kind of satirical uh, slap at, uh, uh, at Roosevelt, and uh, taken by Edwin S. Porter, um, who clearly at least read the New York Journal. Uh, in fact, often, often seemed to make use of uh, various political cartoons in it for his own purposes. So, so that sort of gets us to the end of uh, the 1900 election. So, you know, again, you know, it wasn't a straight line, right? We didn't go as I thought we would uh, from stereopticon to cinema. Even in 1896, there there was a guy uh, out in Chicago who gave illustrated lectures on uh, on, on sort of pro McKinley, pro tariff, whatever. But what was interesting is it was billed in Chicago as a total novelty, right? Because in Chicago, it was a total novelty. Uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the uh, illustrated lecturers who, who gave the tariff illustrated at the 1892 election did it all in the New York area, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. Um, and uh, uh, by, by 1896, uh, uh, Judge Wheeler had died, uh, so he wasn't available for the 1896 election. There were all sorts of reasons why uh, this wasn't reprised again in New York. Clearly, it, it was seen as sort of being counterproductive, but it did continue in 1896. And then there was the 
use of the stereopticon in new forms um, in, in 1900 in, in ways that actually I think proved very effective. And also in 1900, this was a moment when these illustrated lectures were beginning to combine photography and film. So people would show you know, the, the, the war in Cuba and there would be mostly lantern slides, but then there might be eight or nine motion pictures to sort of keep things fresh and keep things up to date. And likewise, Burton Holmes, uh, when he uh, made his films in the Philippines, when he made his illustrated lecture about the Philippines, you know, it was mostly slides, beautiful colored slides, which you could be projected, and then motion pictures. And of course, motion pictures were in black and white. There was a lot of flicker. Uh, you know, there was a novelty of movement and, and of, of sort of things unfolding in time, but also the quality of the image was much more, you know, it, it, was, it would have been difficult to sustain over a long period of time. So you needed those lantern slides with their color to sort of rest the eyes and give and make, you know, a certain, give a certain kind of pleasure. Uh, also, uh, it's interesting that uh, Burton Holmes would lecture over his lantern slides, but usually stop lecturing when the films were shown. That, I think, actually is, is a holdover from something that has really interested me and came up with this, which I think we've probably run out of time, but I, I became really interested in fact the history of the term illustrated lecture. Uh, and if you ask me about it, I'll tell you that it started differently and later than I expected. So, but anyway, so this, this is sort of, you know, what I found interesting and exciting uh, uh, about this book. I mean, obviously there's other details that if you were to go read it, I think you might find interesting, but uh, it gives you some of the high points. Uh, I, I can keep going. <laughs> The original idea for the book with the three eras, the, um, the middle one was television, and then the last era was sort of the new media era and social media and so on. Um, but I'm curious about what role radio right. plays in your sort of bigger picture. And a related question, I was very interested by this notion that the sitting president didn't campaign. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the kind of tipping point for that being normalized was radio and, and uh, FDR's, you know, in particular with his very good use of radio. No, I, I think, I mean, in 1900, I mean, I'm just thinking about it. In 19, 1900, McKinley also stayed at home, but he didn't actually do a front porch campaign. He pretended to. He actually just mm. took it easy mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and would go into Washington when he had to do business. Um, so, um, you know, 1904 was, uh, was Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Roosevelt loved to campaign. You know, so I'm sure he was on the campaign trail in 1904, probably much more than Judge Parker, for that matter. Uh, you know, 1908, you know, it, was, it would have been Taft. And, um, so 1912, you know, was a, was a food fight. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly Roosevelt and, and uh, Wilson were much more evident. Um, so I, I would say, like, it, it, it happened, you know, in, in, in the teens, mm -hmm. uh, or by the teens. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I don't think it, it, radio was a factor. I mean, radio, um, I did become interested uh, in, in radio. And, and uh, you know, radio certainly was really important in the 1940s. And uh, it actually became, began to be uh, important in the 1920s. And uh, someone has written on radio and politics. And basically, they said uh, <clears throat> that uh, 
The feet came early to the Democrats in 1924. They did not know how to use radio. Mm. Should we be surprised? I, I mean, you know, um, Terry Ramsey, if you've ever read A Million and One Nights, uh, and I, I think it's always a really useful book to read uh, if you're interested in American media or American film, says that the screen has always been Republican. He wrote this in 1926. The screen has always been Republican. What's interesting is that, the, that some of the campaign films later on were fostered by William, for, for the Democrats were fostered by William Randolph Hearst. So that goes back to 1896, so there was a lot of continuity there. But the Republicans really tended to dominate. Um, and they dominated radio. And actually, it sort of, I think, felt that Roosevelt didn't make use of radio so much in 1932. It was, he learned how to use it later. You know? So he's definitely the president associated with radio. But um, Coolidge you know, definitely was interested in radio. And the Republicans were interested. They, you know, maybe they didn't have the kind of expertise, but, but um, they, they understood. So I think that what we have, what, and I think that this election actually is really um, a good reminder that, that the, to the extent to which the Republicans have been smarter when it comes to media, right? I mean, that Donald Trump, or whatever you think of him, he was a uh, reality TV star. He knew how to use media. And, you know, Hillary Clinton, we should have, I, I don't want to sound overly cynical here, but one might have suspected that if Hillary Clinton couldn't be Barack Obama, you know, when she had all that seniority and all that experience, basically, you know, in large part because of his media savviness, I think that was really decisive, that this could be, you know, a source of concern, and it's always surprising that, well, I'm sure that they thought about it, right? But, but, um, but anyways, you know, I, I think that the Republicans historically have, had been better in this area. You may not like the way they used it, but they've, been, they've tended to use it more successfully in terms of winning elections. And so Barack Obama, I think, is really the exception that proves the rule. Now, there's one other exception that proves the rule, and, and it's the one time that motion pictures made the difference. There's, there's one election in which motion pictures uh, swung the election from one side to the other, and that's 1948. And that's because the Republicans were too smart for their own good. Right? So. Um, you had uh, Governor Dewey from New York, uh, and with all this money, and you know, so he hired, uh, he he arranged to have this using the model of radio. Actually, you know, in radio, what happened is like, you know, the Republicans would buy time, and then they put on their show, and they plugged it, plugged them, and then the Democrats would buy time, and they put on their show. Well, so so <laughs> Dewey had this idea. We'll make the Dewey story. And then we'll buy time in all the motion picture theaters and put in the Dewey story, and people will see the Dewey story just before the election, and we'll cream them. I mean, the thing is that the, you know Dewey was expected to win, and and he, but he, in a way, he had too much money and too much time, right? Well, Harry Truman, 1948. I mean, he he would not. He was unwilling to put up with this kind of stuff, and he said, you know, there's the Sherman Antitrust Act. You know, we're you know if you. If, if you do that, we will, you know, we will picket the theaters, we will, you know. So, so the, the, the motion picture industry backed off. Hmm. So, no, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll show something by, you know, we'll, we'll show the same thing, we'll do, we'll do balance. And in fact, one of the things that I found that was interesting is that by 1900, not 1896, but by 1900, very often, um, they, would, they would, when they had a show motion pictures in vaudeville, they would show something of, a McKinley and, and something of Bryant, right? So they, the, the move, because 
1896 was a certain kind of an exception. But you, you, if you were in commercial amusement, you had to be careful that you didn't alienate all your Republican patrons or all your Democratic patrons. So you had to be, you had to have at least the appearance of a certain kind of political neutrality. And so the notion of balance was really well established in motion pictures, and, and that mechanism was different in radio. And so what happened actually was Hollywood had to, had to basically fund Truman's campaign film because he had no money. And so they gave it to Universal. Universal was, had been associated with Hearst all along. So Universal, they also had the advantage of having seen the duty story. So they made a sort of more rough, you know, and, and in some ways I think ultimately more effective, although it wasn't seen that way at the time, film. And, and since the Dewey story was done, it was put in movie theaters first. And then the week before the election, the Truman story went into the, into, into the theaters and bangs, you know. I think there was like 90, 90 million uh, uh, ticket sales a, a, a week in, in 1948. And 40, 46, 44, around 46 million voters, people voted. So, I, I mean, it just gives you a sense of the potential impact of the Truman story. And the election was very close, but, you know, it was an upset victory. But the, according to Truman's campaign manager, the major reason for the upset had to do with the Truman story being in moving picture theaters. So, so, so actually, cinema, at the very last moment that cinema could have an impact, well, we thought until Fahrenheit 9-11 that cinema could have an impact uh, on, uh, on electoral campaigns. It did, but it, you know, but it was, it's not because that the Democrats suddenly got smart. I mean, Truman did actually work on his sort of sense of media presentation. I don't mean to say he was indifferent, but it's just that, that Dewey and the Republicans you know, got to be too smart for their own good. Uh, yes. Um. Sorry for the interruption. No, no, that's the that's part of the country that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, um, right near Akron, as you probably know, and Kent, Ohio. Uh -huh. um, this last bit is interesting to me because I have a photographer friend who used to travel with Walter Mondale mm -hmm. when he would go fishing and take sort of mm -hmm. supposedly sort of you know casual photographs, which would then sometimes end up in magazines like you know, Time Magazine or whatever. But so mm -hmm. it's a common, obviously, practice. Um, I'm just curious if you, it's not really central to your talk, but what ended up happening in McKinley? Uh, he ended up getting assassinated. He was assassinated, right, in uh, September 1901, and so Teddy Roosevelt, you know, and, and uh, uh, Mark Hanna, who was, uh, the Ohio was part of the Ohio machine, uh, although what, what I found was I felt that Abner McKinley was really effective at being the behind behind-the-scenes guy, and more important than has been recognized. But yeah, so Mark Hanna like, supposedly said to McKinley when they nominated Roosevelt as vice president, now you have to stay alive for the next four years. And, 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 and by the way, Hanna was a hero uh, of Karl Rove. Uh-huh. Yeah. There, there for go. what it's worth. For what it's worth, yeah. yeah. So. And of course, the more famous McKinley film is the one that he's not really in, but it's after he's shot at the fair, and it's the Porter, I guess Porter was there, it's the Porter footage of all the right. people gathering outside just after right. he's been shot. Um, it's not my question. Uh, my question is about the, I mean, I'm interested in the kind of intermedial relationships that you especially gesture to at the end with this film, as a kind of you know, copying or taking inspiration from the cartoon. Uh, and 
I guess it's related to a question about that, that has to do with this, like without oversimplifying, this parallel, you could say, between say, Trump's adoption of the low attention span mm -hmm. media of Twitter you know, versus uh, uh, what the Democrats do, and then McKinley's adoption of, the, at that time, the low attention span media, right, the new film, the short mm -hmm. you know, image of him, versus Bryant, who is the great orator, right. right? And people today who talk about the problem of new media and short attention fans will often look back to that moment of Lincoln and uh, William Jennings Bryan, where they would speak for hours and people would be willing to listen to it and kind of uh, use that as the comparison to show that you know we've all lost our capacity to pay attention today and you can't no one can imagine mm -hmm. listening to that. Uh, anymore. So, but in any case, my question is whether or not there was that kind of discourse. Was there anything like that kind of discourse at the time? I mean, were, was there anyone in, say, the newspaper saying uh, to try to defend themselves against the, these new media forms by making those kinds of arguments like we, you know, our readers are, you know, uh, better somehow than the people who would watch these films made by the Republicans? Or is there any kind of discourse the newspapers trying to kind of? Uh, shore themselves up against the immediate threat? Well, I mean, first of all, you know, almost all the established newspapers that have been Democratic moved Republican. So, and, and they reported extensively on what McKinley was saying from his front porch. But I actually would argue that there was the latent subtext of the McKinley campaign was not, you know, the gold standard. McKinley had actually somewhat ambiguous, ambiguous feelings about the gold standard, but was sort of forced to choose sides and knew he had to choose that side. But he sort of w tried to waffle as much as he could, and he was just allowed to. But I think that, that what the McKinley campaign was saying is that technological innovation is going to get us out of this terrible economic crisis we're in. And the economic crisis, it was only in 1900 that the unemployment rate fell to 5%. Even in 1899, it was like, Nine percent, ten percent. So throughout the you know throughout the first few years of McKinley's presidency, not to mention the terrible crisis on Cleveland. I mean the 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 financial panic of 1893 was really beginning before it was even in office, and probably one of the reasons why he won in 1892 was that you know things weren't measured so precisely, and probably already there were adverse effects being felt around the country, and they just hadn't steamrolled into some kind of major crisis yet. So, so I think that, that actually th this was being, this was the forceful argument uh, of McKinley, you know, you know the, not only the bicycle, but you know, the, the telephone, motion pictures, but just a kind of in general kind of attitude, a kind of can do, let's experiment with new, new media forms, mm -hmm. with new technologies, uh, you know, as opposed to Brian, who was, you know, for, you know, very connected with farmers and tradition and the church, and he was, you know, he was a lot of born again sort of people. And it's interesting that when McKinley at Home was shown in Costum Bial's Music Hall, it was at two weeks in Hammerstein's Olympia, then it moved to Costum Bial's Music Hall. Uh, it shared the lead attraction with the what's the name of the sisters, but they uh, they were. Uh, Everyone was expecting they would be arrested because they were basically stripped. They were they were stripped. Gish, what? Gish, Gish, no, 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 no. Uh, it's, it's it's yeah. It's not the Cherry Sisters either. Uh, but but uh, you know they they not. But it's just to say that you know that that 
variety uh, houses like Costume Gals Music Hall, I mean, these were um, risque. I mean, this was basically male entertainment. I mean, it wasn't quite burlesque, but but uh, but it was still uh, not some not something that um, you know conservative uh, cultural conservatives would have uh, wanted to be associated with. And, and obviously, you know. The Biograph Company had no trouble with it, and uh, whatever. So um, I don't know if that helps answer your question. But I, you know, I think it's, it has much more to do with rural, pre, you know, resistance majority versus Republicans. Really, do, did sort of see themselves as the party of the future, a modernity of industry and you know um, stuff. Yeah. So your illustrated uh, lecture question, but to get to it, 1898, we were talking earlier about the 1898 Sears catalog, and what surprised, surprised me in it is that they have several full-page uh, promotions in 1898 right. anyway, for two things, the Klondike and, of course, the, the uh, Cuba. Right. And um, what they presented, what they offered were, were basically stereopticon slides, lectures, recordings and film, and you can right. mix and match any, any assemblage of that. But it looked pretty sophisticated and pretty well oiled by that stage of the game. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so well, one of, the, one of the, I mean, I sort of traced at least one of these guys who was, whose illustrated lecture they were promoting, who was a minister and, you know, gave it in Chicago, and he, he'd been showing slides and film on the Optiograph, which was their projector, and so, at, yeah, and so out of, out of that, Alliance, I think, you know, they managed to acquire his lecture and put his name on it. So, you know, I mean, there was that. So, I mean, what's interesting is the people who, who were the people who likely to, to be the orators at the, for these illustrated lectures on Cuba? And a huge number of them were, in fact, ministers. So, Voice of God, that was it. You know, the Voice of God spoke about uh, the war in Cuba and, you know, how, what it, you know, sort of, well, Christian masculinity, well, rugged Christian masculinity. You know that that uh, the war was something that 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 was, you know, that, that not only was acceptable, but but actually desirable uh, for many for some of these Protestant groups. Um, and uh, yeah, so so, so and, and then and then there were the soldiers and the sailors and stuff like that. Because one of the running motifs in promoting, you know, your acquisition of this stuff from Sears would be. Essentially, they're pitching to the middle of nowhere USA, and, mm -hmm. they're, and they're speaking to someone who wants to become a, an authority, a source of information to right. use for the community. So you're constantly assured, even if you have no public speaking uh, experience, we're going to provide you with the text, we'll provide you with the cues to do it. Um, so I'm sure, of course, the preachers probably get it, but they also seem to be trying to sell this as a site of expertise in the community. Mm -hmm. and it's through those, but they also have recordings of lectures, which I have no idea raises the question of ephemeral evidence. Mm -hmm. um, right. The telephone stuff is great, but what do we know about it, except from secondhand reports? Recordings, <laughs> there seem to have been a number of recordings of speeches, but I don't know that they exist. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but the recordings, okay, so in terms of the phonograph and political speech, so in 1896, they basically, you know, the, the, the people associated with the phonograph companies Phonograph the speech, right? But they weren't by the people. They weren't by Brian and stuff. But you know, in 1900, actually, there was this huge pressure on uh, on Brian and the Democratic Party to use the phonograph. 
and to in fact, you know, create, have photograph exhibitors going around giving photograph concerts, right, which were fairly popular photograph <laughs> concerts. And, and so actually Brian and like nine other Democratic figures uh, spoke to, you know, spoke into the photograph recording and, and, uh, and, and they, they, they were supposed to make, you know, I don't know, a hundred copies of each of them. And this ended up in court and it turned out that actually the quality of the photograph masters was so bad that the, that the people that were supposed to make the copies from the photograph masters felt they were unusable. And so there was a, a court case in which the Democratic Party lost. Uh, and to, I, I have not been unable to find that those photograph recordings, you know, made by the Democratic, you know, in their headquarters, uh, survive. Um, so that, that was really the first sustained serious moment to use the voice of the candidates for presidential politics, but it was totally unsuccessful. And this, again, was consistent with the way, and by 1900, I should say also that, that the Biograph Company actually did film uh, Williams Jenny Bryan, and, and Williams Jenny Bryan and the Democratic campaign uh, actually worked with uh, William Selly, and, and Selly came and took a bunch of pictures of Bryan, and they were going to maybe go around and give, you know, a traveling exhibitor giving a kind of pro, pro Bryan uh, exhibition, but I, I found no, no evidence that that actually happened. But but uh, Sully did show these films of, the, of Brian. With he also went and he filmed Roosevelt. He like gives an elaborate account of how he managed to pay Roosevelt's driver to stop in front of his camera when he was in Minneapolis and get him to bow to the camera or take his hat off. And so these things were put together. And this was part of the balance program that was established. You know, began to be pretty clearly established by 1900. You know, 1908. You know, they, they when they made pictures of Taft, they you know they said show the Taft pictures with your Bryan pictures. And I mean, so uh, around the country, Nickelodeons at this point in 1908 would show pictures of both candidates. Again, always being careful not to alienate you know you know whatever portion of their patronage that came from either you know, either party. So. Yes. So I just have a small question. Um, I, I love this idea of, of it doesn't even matter during the Sound Money March if, uh, if McKinley says anything on the phone. It just matters that he's listening on right. the phone. Like I love that. Um, and thinking about this issue of, of presence and, and and oration, I was wondering when people start using microphones and loudspeakers at at, uh, at speeches. So like um, when William Jennings Bryan is going around the country, like is he amplified? When do like when does that become standard practice at I think large that, Yeah, I think that that is actually related to the radio, right? I mean, you, when you develop these um, electronic microphones, that yeah. and so that would be the 1920s. I mean, okay. you know, so I, I actually did a uh, a little program of political campaign films uh, uh, in the silent era um, at Portinone. That's something else I encourage you all to go to Portinone. Bill doesn't go as, William does not go as often as he should, but he has been at, at times. And, uh, and so, so, yeah, I mean, it was really actually quite striking the way in which things began to change, even though the films were silent. Well, not all the films were silent, actually. They did uh, do um, some photophone uh, films of the three major candidates in, in uh, 1924. Um, and, and they were shown in large theaters, you know, in New York City and, and uh, 
and Coolidge was considered, you know, the best of the three. Um, so, um, so yeah, so 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 I think that that was twenty-four was a really important would be an important turning point, but it didn't. You know, the Republicans at that moment were still so dominant that it didn't. And again, the Republicans were the people who were media savvy, so it all just reinforced itself. Catherine, if I could just flip your question, there's yeah. another. It's pretty clear through, through films like the, the uh, Lonely Villa. What's that, 1911? Uh, Lonely Eight. Villa is in 19, 1909. Um, there, there's some sense, that sense of co-presence, that physical co-presence and the anxieties that produces is pretty strong. And so the, this campaign seems to be exploiting that. It shows up in a bunch of films, um, a couple of films anyway, after. I don't know when that peters out. When do people stop? You know, we, we normalize, when we're on the phone, we normalize right. the fact that we're here and like that's right. over there. We don't have an anxiety about it. It's pretty clear that at least for a decade or so in this period, that sense of someone actually being co-present mm -hmm. has a very different balance than it right. does now. Do you, know, you have a sense of when that? Oh. You know, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's remarkable about the 1896 election is the extent to which space and time were being manipulated, involving you know, the, the politicking and the, and, the polit and the political candidates themselves. So, um, you know, how does that, you know, I, I think it's, it, it even is reduced by 1900. Um, the, uh, you know, that was based, uh, the Lonely Bill was based loosely on a, on a French play, uh, a telephone, you know, where Actually, there's not a successful rescue, uh, as in the Lonely Villa, but the man actually is helplessly listens to his wife being killed over the telephone. So, um, so yeah, so so you know that 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 had its own particular kind of twist. I mean, I think actually, sensational media today continues to be fascinated by those kinds of uh, you know coincidences. Um, so it's all over the internet all the time. You know? and of course. There's like that woman who, who uses her, used her cell phone to record her husband or her boyfriend being shot and killed by the police. So, I mean, so cell, cell phones have, I think, brought that back in a kind of very powerful way. So, doesn't anyone want to ask me about like when the Illustrated Election began? <laughs> when is the Illustrated Election? I don't want to ask. You. I don't want to ask anything else. Um, okay. Yeah, no, thanks for this. I, um, I'm curious, just following the thread that you were just on, um, I'm wondering about whether there was a conversation or a discourse at uh, the time that this is happening around the potential power of uh, new media forms to impose ideology on people. So are people looking at media production and film production uh, coming from, from other places and worrying or discussing or thinking about the ways to which they're going to be, you know, brainwashed by these new forms uh, at a political level. Not only, I mean, I know there's the moral tags around the telephone or women's access to the phone that, you know, men freak out and think this is going to, uh, you know, there's all this, this, these conversations about they're going to get diseases which are transmitted over the phone and it's about sort of reasserting control over communication and the space of the home suddenly opens up. But I'm not thinking about that level, I'm thinking more about right. the political brainwashing level. Well, you, you know, just to fly my book here for a moment, I, I have two epigraphs in the book. And the first is actually, actually from Danny Schechter, who uh, actually was uh, the news dissector from Boston, if you guys happen 
you're almost all too young. But anyway, he, Danny Schechter moved down to New York, and, and he, was, he, he would always say, no matter what the story, there's always another story, the media story. So that was one. But the other, the other epigraph is from the Washington Post, August 16, 1900. It said, the moving picture machine is to figure in the campaign. The moving picture machine learned how to cheat some time ago. So the, the, it, uh, the moving picture machine learned how to cheat some time ago. So, I mean, there is this sense of, that, uh, of motion pictures being able to manipulate, uh, being manipulative. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think, I, so, I, you know, I don't think that, I don't think that people thought film, thought of film in, in as naively as we like to sometimes think they did, right? I think that actually people were much more sophisticated than we sometimes like to give them credit. And I, I actually think the Biograph program uh, and in fact, you know, the, the decision to hold back uh, Brian Train scene uh, is just one indication of the awareness of the potential political impact of motion pictures, uh, e even a few months after it was first introduced on a you know, projected basis. And then at what point did, did people start producing more sort of counter, counter films to the stuff that's being produced by these campaigns? So like, this is a really interesting example. Um, you know, this is kind of, it's reversed, it almost feels like mean culture, right? So they're picking up on this uh, cartoon in the newspaper and producing a moving image version of it. Um, but that, they're, they're pretty well resourced producers of this. At what point does it? Okay, so, so let's go. The, in 1888, the campaign documentary, the Illustrated Lecture, was incredibly successful. May, maybe the Republicans are being overly generous, or maybe they're saying the truth that this certainly contributed to Benjamin Harrison's victory. What happened in 1892, you know, such that Harrison lost? I think he lost New York State by 40,000 votes. You know, well, I mean, a few things happened. First of all, the novelty of the Tariff Illustrated had worn off to some extent, right? So that's one thing they learned, which is novelty was important, therefore, therefore cinema, therefore the Biograph Company. That was like the logical leap. Not to give up on it, but to, you know, to, to Keep it fresh, keep it new. So that was pretty savvy in a way, right? But the other thing was that the Democratic newspapers, it's not like that the, de that the Democrats tried to do their version of the Tariff Illustrated. They never got involved in the Illustrated Lecture. But the newspapers really start going after these guys. You know, so, so they, they would like say, oh, you know, their figures are made up, or they would lampoon them, or like, you know, talk about how they were dressed. And like, I mean, I, there are some somewhat extensive. Newspaper, in fact, I have a number of newspaper articles in the appendix, some of which really lampoon the, uh, the, the Tariff Illustrated uh, in 1892. So they, were, they did to the Tariff Illustrated what the Republicans did to Michael Moore with Fahrenheit 9-11, just, just to put it in political perspective. And of course, one reason why the Republicans were able to do it so effectively with Michael Moore and Fahrenheit 9-11 is that the 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 media structure of the blogs and other stuff was already in place because of uh, Bowling for Columbine, because he used Bowling for Columbine to go after the Republicans in the, uh, in the off election, the 2002 election. Um, and, and so that already riled things up. Um, and then, and then um, I think that's right. But anyway, yeah. Um, so, so, um, but but the, the Michael Moore, uh, you know, those blogs were already in place before Fahrenheit 9/11. They were just remobilized. 
and we're going to be remobilized again if you've done anything in 2008, which is why you decided not to do Fahrenheit 9, 11 and a half. No one's going to ask me about, I, this is one thing I really thought was interesting, is like, when do, you, when do you think the term illustrated lecture became popular? Do you think it was 1750, 1805, 1835, 1850, 1870? How much is the test worth? I don't know. What, what are we, uh, I can't give you my copy of the book. It's used in the 18th century. I'm pretty what? sure it's 18th century. Maybe in the UK, but not in the United States. The first, ver the first reference I have found, you know, and, and by this point with digital, you know, random word access, you know, we, we have a pretty, 1841. 1841. And it's, it's a quote from a British newspaper where they gave an illustrated lecture of, a of the telegraph, of the electric telegraph. And it was really not <coughs> hardly used at all in the 1840s began to be used a little bit in the 1850s. The term stereopticon took off like that. But the term illustrated lecture was much more gradual. In fact, I have a little, a little graph here. This is why you need this book. There's a I, have, I brought the, uh, yeah. So let's see if I can find this graph. Uh, it's actually not a graph, it's a chart. Uh, and uh, the term illustrated lecture in, uh, the 18 from eight, this was a, in the New York Times. I found between 1860 and 1869 three references to the term illustrated lecture. In 1870 to 1879, 44. 1888, 1889, 212, 1890 to 1899, 545. So it really, you know, while stereopticon, uh, you know, like there was. Uh, there were 20, uh, let's see here, 25 uh, in, uh, in, the, in 1860 to 1869. That sounds low. 132 takes off. Anyway. Um, Is there something else that they call them? Is there anything else that they, like, with picture, you know, is there like something well, well, I mean, the thing is, no, I mean, and what was interesting about the illustrated lecture when it was first used, it wasn't necessarily illustrated the way you think, like this. You could give an illustrated lecture on, on, on Beethoven, where you would illustrate your lecture with, like, playing for the piano, or with models, or, you know, or, and, and then very often with paintings. So what was interesting to me is actually, I began to realize they were sort of, in terms of presentations in the 19th century, there were sort of three terms that kept on being that were recurrent. One was to exhibit. So the stereopticon was always exhibited. The illustrated, and then there was the illustrated lecture, which did not, you know, in fact, did not necessarily involve visual illustrations initially, and then gradually more and more. And it was only like in 1879 that you sort of coined the term stereopticon lecture as a kind of variant on illustrated lecture with stereoptica, right? So it was really, so that, so what I find interesting about this is I, I, you know, my curiosity about documentary as a formation, there was the exhibition with a stereoptica and there was the illustrated lecture. And it was really only in the 1870s that these things be, really came together. And I, I'm just thinking like, like particularly around Yosemite and, uh, and, and uh, illustrated lectures on Yosemite and on Yellowstone. 
these seem to have been like really important moments in in documentary that and that was like a, a kind of cr crucial moment where the formation uh, something changed then whether you want to say it was the beginning or you know a, a kind of a, a more mature form a much more mature formation than before um, but that, that 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 was it and so you know the three terms that keep on popping up is exhibition lecture performance you know so like the circus could be an exhibition or a performance you know so so there were ways in which you know how these terms sort of circulated i thought was really interesting and the way ultimately the illustrated lecture and the stereoptican came together uh as a doc kind of documentary formation so th that's what that's where this took me and when i'm sort of getting back to uh this 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 uh, book that i promised the academy of motion picture arts and sciences and they would not fund out, they would not give me the second half of my funding for uh, politicking and emerging media, so I have to actually do this book on, on uh, film truth documentary practice, so that may be the first chapter. Terrific, <coughs> terrific. Well, let's get you on there. Terrific.